0: Hi Siang, Uh, happy to have you on the show. Really pleased to have someone from Malaysia sharing about your journey as a lawyer and in tech. And so I would love for you to introduce yourself in one minute. Hey Jeremy, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. So my name is
1: Siang. I grew up in Malaysia. I was there for 18 years of my life before I moved to the UK. I studied in an international school in, in Malaysia. I loved growing up there. As I grew older and then looked for more opportunities, my parents, I was so fortunate enough to have my parents allow me to to go to the UK to study where I went to do university in London. Did a degree in philosophy and economics and then did a conversion course into law where I then started my career as a lawyer practicing in London. I worked for a magic circle law firm called Linklaters. Did that for quite a number of years. I was at Linklaters for 12 years where in that time I spent a better part of it practicing as a structured finance lawyer, and then later on, I pivoted towards legal tech. I got that opportunity because I helped to create an a in-house legal tech startup at LinkedIn called Nakota. and my mandate, our mandate, was to look for innovative solutions using technology for lawyers. I got to work with data scientists, computer programmers, product managers, and I absolutely loved it, and that gave me the bug for legal tech and, and product design. I did that for six years, some of that time in London and some of that in Asia. When I moved to Hong Kong and then looked after the the region, I looked after sort of the APAC rollout of the tools that we created. And I frequented uh, Singapore, Japan, Thailand, uh, and of course, Hong Kong as well, where I was uh, physically located. I did that for a number of years, really loved it. Big learning for me was about educating people to use technology, especially in a traditional industry like law, where the mindset is usually very traditional. And uh, how you convince people to, to do something different was was a big learning for me. And really enjoyed that journey and then discovered Seed Legals, which is a another legal tech that focuses on startups and helping startups with the legal journey, especially around fundraising. When I discovered Sea Eagles, I, I thought, this is an amazing opportunity. This is a great company that at that time only existed in Europe. And I said to the founders, have you thought about expanding? Have you thought about Asia? Fast forward, we, we, we sort of explored all of this and uh, landed in Singapore, where I joined the company and helped to bring the technology and the service into, into Asia, into Southeast Asia. I now head up see legals in APAC. Uh, we have offices in Singapore and Hong Kong, and we're now very excited to help startups across the region get going with their legals.
0: Amazing. And what
1: was it like growing up in Malaysia until 18? Like, you know? It was amazing. I loved growing up. I actually don't have any bad memories of, of Malaysia. I love my country. I encourage anyone listening to this to come and eat, to come and makan in uh, Malaysia. The food was amazing, still is. I have to say that COVID was very tough because I was away for three years. And in those three years, I missed the food so much. Don't tell my mother because I I say, say to mama, I just missed the food. And she says, well, what about me? <laughs> but honestly, Malaysia has, has that joy. And I also think that there's a communal spirit about Malaysians, very welcoming, very friendly. and And that was a big part of shaping who I am and how I became to be who I am where I, I think it's you know there's this curiosity about other people and, and wanting to get to know others and to welcome them into your home, welcome them into your lives. What I discovered leaving Malaysia is that no matter which country you're in or which city you're in, you you discover another Malaysian and immediately there's a, a kindred spirit of bond. And I think that comes from what it's like growing up in Malaysia, where there's such a melting pot of cultures and different races, different backgrounds kind of coming together. I think also one thing that's different about my education in Malaysia is that we, for those of us who are fortunate enough to have the ability to go abroad, we were encouraged to go abroad. I think that's partly due to the you know geopolitical situation in Malaysia, the opportunities, really growing up, we were always taught if you can go abroad, get the experience to either study and or work abroad, it's really, really good for you. And so growing up, my parents instilled that mindset in me and I always try my best to look for an opportunity abroad and I was fortunate enough to be able to go to the UK and, and travel and experience. I've been away from Malaysia for you know almost 20 years now. Nobody count my age, please. But It's been an amazing journey.
0: What's interesting is that you followed, I think, the route, of course, of many Malaysians who are studying abroad, especially in the UK. What's interesting is that you also chose to be a lawyer as, as an undergraduate. So what kind of like triggered that start to be like, I'm interested to be a lawyer or study the legal profession?
1: Yeah, I'm going to say something quite controversial, which is that I I didn't. I actually went abroad to study. My first undergraduate degree was in philosophy and economics. And how that came about was because my father was a lawyer. And I said to my father before I went abroad, I don't want to be a lawyer because you're a lawyer and I don't want to follow this traditional path where son becomes like the same route as your your father. So I did the three years in philosophy and economics. And it was around the time of the, the Lehman's Credit Crunch. So when I graduated, I had two choices. Either I pursued what I learned in philosophy and followed academia, which I did not want to do, or I used economics and go into finance, into banking, which as I said during the Lehman's crisis was probably a really bad time to do it. So I had to think of another alternative. And like I said in just moments earlier, we were really encouraged to stay abroad as long as possible. And so I had to find a way to stay in England, in London where, where I really, really wanted to be. And The visa requirements is actually very, very tough. You need to be earning a high enough salary and be working for an international organization, which limited it to very, very few organizations, one of those being in the legal industry. And and that's actually what got me curious about jumping into the legal profession. So then I I started exploring and I discovered these international magic circle firms and that they would sponsor my visa. They would also sponsor my law school. And obviously it was a great profession. And more importantly for me at the time, the firm that I chose, Linklaters, was expanding very rapidly around the world, opening offices everywhere. And they offered the opportunity to travel and to have that international experience. And that's what got me the hook into into joining this profession because I wanted to be exposed. I wanted to travel. I wanted to work with clients across the world. I wanted to do cross-border deals. And why did I do that? Later, we I was always working on cross-border deals. It was very, very enjoyable to meet new people, to learn how they think, and also to work with companies all over the world, right? We were, We often had front-page FT deals that I was working on, and it was very exciting. At the same time, I was also developing a lot of very transferable skills. So negotiation, analytics, communication, writing, reading font that is like, Font size six, and actually trying to come up with uh, how to understand what that means, and analyzing the you know what that means for for the client, and and I think all of that is what shaped me to to be able to get all those transferable skills and, and move on into other uh, aspects of my life.
0: Amazing. It's interesting because your father was a lawyer, and you didn't want to be, and then you kind of got there because of. And thank you for being so honest and frank about what were the realities of having to make that choice. I'm curious about. When you watch your father be a lawyer versus you being a lawyer today, I did the math a little bit. So as a kid, you probably observed him working as a lawyer where you are at the same age roughly today, right? So are there any parallels or reflections or echoes through time of him being a lawyer and you being a lawyer now?
1: Yeah, I, I suppose that I should culture a little bit more by saying that my father was a barrister and I became a solicitor. So there are two very different aspects of lawyering. And just to share with the audience, you know, barristers tend to be the ones that go to court and argue the case and defend uh, an accused. Whereas as a solicitor, I tend to work in large teams, work with more documentation, negotiation. and, And because I was in the area of finance, it tended to be more deal making. So in that sense, it was different in terms of what we were doing. But the similarities, to go back to your question, is that at the end of the day, you're really just helping someone else. You're helping to achieve, helping someone else achieve what they set out to be, whether it's trying to stay away from jail or it is trying to buy a large company or take out a a large loan or whatever it is. You're just trying to help someone else. And I think that's ultimately what drew me into the profession. It's also what I enjoy doing, whether as a big law lawyer, helping my clients to achieve you know, whatever they're trying to achieve, or helping a startup founder today, trying to get his business idea going, but needing help with uh, complicated legals. So I think it's the aspect of helping others that really appealed me to this profession.
0: If you had a family of your own, would you also tell your child to be a lawyer one day? I would not stop him or her
1: doing it. <laughs> Reverse that. I, I think... It's difficult to say, don't do it. It's difficult to say, do it. I think I've learned a lot of challenges in this profession. And if uh, I had a child or if uh, someone came to me for advice, I would be very candid and honest. You know, it is a tough profession. It's very demanding. It's getting more and more competitive to enter and to stay within. Gone are the days where you work and climb the profession, six to eight years, you make a partner, and then you sort of sit back and maybe play golf and, and bring clients in. That doesn't exist anymore. When I look at my peers and those above me in, in their profession, they work extremely hard. There's extremely high pressures and you know, it's, it's challenging. I think a lot comes down to the kind of person you are and what you're trying to achieve. If you thrive on that sort of pressure, if you thrive on that sort of deal-making and trying to come to some creative solution, then yes, I think this is a great profession for you. As I said earlier, you know, no matter what happens, you will still get a lot of transferable skills and you will be set up for a really good transition into whatever other profession you choose to be. Whether you are going into a startup like I did, or you're going to start a small business, or you're going to pivot into any other profession really, I often have lawyers or to or be lawyers or maybe law grads ask me this very similar question and they say, actually, should I apply for a training contract, which is the graduate program to become a lawyer? Should I, I have a training contract. Should I even take it up? Should I finish those two years? And often the answer is yes, you should try. Because if you don't try, you don't know. Also, it's just a couple of years of your life and it's going to be great experience for you. You're young. I'm still young. I'm still learning. And I think that there's no such thing as bad experience. So I don't discourage people from the law profession. I think you just need to go into it with your eyes open.
0: And what's interesting is that you did enter the legal profession with both eyes open and you did put in just a couple of years of life <laughs> and eventually transition towards more of the technology side of the business, right? In terms of like working startups, looking at legal tech. So could you explain how that transition happened, I think from more from the partnership approach to more of a technology approach?
1: For me, I always wanted to see the bigger picture of things. Whilst I have said really good things about the legal profession, at the end of the day, it's one aspect of running a business one aspect of developing a technology business. And so for me, I was always curious about tech. I was always curious about running a business and, and how uh, the strategy, the go-to market, building a team, working with competitors, working with partners, all that kind of stuff was very, very intriguing to me. And as a lawyer, you see a part of it, but you don't see the the weeds of it. By the time a client comes to you and asks you to document something or negotiate something, a lot of the commercials tends to already have been done. I think it was that curiosity that kind of made me want to explore further. Also, I was just a geek. I enjoyed looking into technology. When I was young, I uh, used to play a lot of computer games. One of those types of computer games was actually a text-based multi-user dungeon, so a a mud. And what it is, is really, it's just text. You, you type in commands and you say, go left. And then the description, it comes up on screen and you read the description. You're in a farmland. On your left, you see a tree. On your right, you see a path. Do you walk towards the tree or do you walk towards the path? And you say, walk towards the tree. You type it in and you go and you take a step forward. And I really enjoyed it. I It, it was the text and it was the creativity that was speaking to me. But I just thought, wow, that technology is actually not that complicated, but you can create something so amazing and and have such a wonderful experience as a child when I was growing up playing these games. And so I just thought that, wow, with tech and the accessibility of tech now to lay people like me who did not do a computer science degree, but yet I can work in the industry and I can actually help to build something useful and helpful for other people. That was very appealing to me. In the eight years that I was in private practice, I realized that there were a lot of things that could be done better faster, more efficient, more accurately by using technology. And so that was the opportunity for me to combine what I knew about law plus my interest in technology and then eventually my experience in technology to create something even better for people trying to consume legal services. Whether that is using automation to create the documents that you need to create or even simple tools like tracking the status of things or signing documents. Or you could use AI to analyze documents as NLP getting more and more, which is natural language processing, becoming more accurate these days. You can use that to help you to at least run a first pass through documents and pick up things that could be relevant to the client. And I think this is all very exciting. This is making lawyers even better at what they do and helping clients to be to get to the endpoint quicker, faster, and, and, and better, and that's what's really really exciting for me.
0: Well, I you know you kind of got me with the whole uh, flashback to uh, multi-user dungeons mud games. You know, I used to play a game called Archon, so I totally understand what you mean by that. And I think what's interesting is that obviously you built technology. What has been I think the difference in personal or professional lifestyle slash approach that you've had to do when you've moved? from, to some extent, one side of the business to a more technology-focused approach, right, which is like legal tech versus uh, the legal industry?
1: Great question, Jeremy. I worked in a big institution, big corporate, and with that comes hierarchy, it comes structure, it comes with a very, very nice office, and you're expected to be a part of all of that. Yes, there's more remote working these days because of COVID, but By and large, you're in an office and there's a lot of structure and support around you. You know, we had HR, we had accounting teams, finance teams in a big law firm. Heck, like even in in London, we even had like a a doctor's office, a laundromat downstairs. There was a gym downstairs. Essentially, you didn't even need to leave the office if you didn't want to. You could sleep there. We We had beds there for you to sleep in. Now I work for a startup and I spend most of my days working from home. I roam around to coffee shops. I have a great list of coffee shops in Hong Kong and Singapore to work from. So if anybody wants to know that, let me know. I roam around in co-working spaces. My team is full remote. Half my team are in Singapore, half my team are in Hong Kong. So we can never always be in the same room at the same time at any one time. So how do you make that work? And how do you meet up enough physically in person to ensure you get the best of in-person meet, but yet at the same time, respect and also take advantage of the flexibility of remote working. And I think for me the biggest challenge stroke opportunity is being more disciplined with my time, being more structured with my time. I do think there's a there's a certain aspect of going into an office that frames your mindset. When I step foot into this office, I am in work mode and I am going to get my stuff done very diligently. When I step out of the office, then I have a slightly different mode. But if I'm working from home all the time, I have to be disciplined. Just to my left here, I have a big snack corner and a lot of beers, and that is very distracting. So, how do I actually stay focused? How do I get stuff done? And I think that that's one of the big challenges. But at the same time, like I say, the flexibility is brilliant. I get to decide how I spend my time, my day. I have lost a lot of weight in a healthy way since leaving the law firm, because I can play tennis, go running, go to the gym, and fit that into my day, and yet still be really productive with my team and, and with my work. So yeah, it's double-edged sword, but at the end of the day, it comes down to your own discipline. I think the other aspect is also just the support that I once took for granted in a big corporate, like I said, HR, finance, all that kind of thing. If you start your career in a in a place like that, you I was guilty of just taking it for granted. Like, you know, HR just got stuff done. Like I got my pay on time. Leave got approved. I got benefits, et cetera. And I just thought, wow, this must be like what working anywhere else is like. And now in a startup, I really understand that that's a real perk. It's a real benefit. Don't take it for granted. It's hard. HR stuff is hard. Uh, the admin stuff is boring, but essential, And so, you know, we we still have to make things work within a startup. And I'm very blessed because my team are understanding. And sometimes if things slip because a bit of admin was missed, then we just do our best to correct it. And I think that's where the difference is, you know, now, because I work in a smaller team, everyone is a lot more aware of all the different aspects that goes on in running a business, as opposed to being in a big corporate where you just kind of work in your own silo and, and your own work stream. And, and I enjoy that. I, I like the aspect of being more broad and seeing things uh, from a different light, seeing how different people's experiences come together and, and can make things better. You know, it, the sum of the parts equals the whole. And so I really enjoy that that collaborativeness in a, in a startup that is absolutely necessary, yeah.
0: Amazing, you're really describing the experience of a lawyer working at a startup, working on the law side of, for other startups. So a bit of a legal inception here. Why work on law for startups? Because all the other startups in the world are like that, right? Which is HR isn't working well, paying up your time, and probably legals are not really in order as well. So, what challenges do you normally see with other startups who are, you know, struggling with basic processes, let alone investing in I don't know the legal side? So, what's the pitch here?
1: Yeah, I think it starts with you don't know what you don't know. The legal side of things tends to be very opaque very inaccessible you know if you try and go online and google what do i need to know as a startup founder you probably can't find it unless you land on a c-legals page it's so opaque as a founder you you know that the legal is important but unless you yourself have some sort of legal background or or, you know has been a have been a business owner before you, you probably don't know the full extent of it and i think that's the attraction for me anyway because I get a lot of personal satisfaction when I sit down with a founder and I say, okay, what, tell me what you know, tell me what you want to achieve. And we have that conversation. And then not very long after that, I can open their eyes and tell them a few more things that they should be aware of, or give them a few more ideas of how they could achieve what they want to achieve in a legal and also commercially viable way. And I think that's very, very attractive to me. And I think why this particular sector, i.e. startups, for me personally, is because when I was at a big international law firm, the clients that I worked for tended to be much more sophisticated. They tended to do the thing, whatever it is they were trying to achieve, they were doing it day in, day out. So they kind of already knew what they needed to do. And then they engaged me, the law firm, to do it. But here, startup founder doesn't really know. And so when you can open their eyes, when you can help them, it's very, very rewarding because you know, you're really helping people who need the most help. When I was working in a big law firm, I was very, very expensive. But the clients that we worked for could afford them, right? They are private equity firms. there are large financial institutions, banks. Now we're working for startups. And it's uh, not that they are poor, but capital is stretched at most times. And so uh, most startup founders, especially at the earliest stages, before C-Legals existed, had two options. One is they have to go and find a law firm and it could be quite expensive. Or two, they go online, go into Google, try and download something and then tailor it themselves. Or they might ask a buddy who they know went to law school and ask them, "Oh, do you mind helping me? I know that you specialize in divorce cases, but I'm trying to set up a company. Can you help me just do this? Neither of those are really viable or good options for a, a startup founder. And that's where I, I think the appeal of what we're doing is there because because we can use the technology, we can make the service a lot more affordable and therefore the, the startups can take the benefit of that the, 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 the legal services that we, we provide. Everything that is on the platform is has been vetted by lawyers. It's in compliance with local jurisdictions, laws. But more importantly also, because we've been doing it for so many years, because we've been collecting data along that time, the documents, the services that we provide is all informed and driven by market practice. We've serviced over 35,000 startups and investors in, in the years gone by. We open 50 funding rounds a week now globally. And so because we're a tech company, we're collecting that data and then using that to improve the product as we go along. And so the next startup that comes along really takes the benefit of all that accumulated knowledge experience sharing. So they're really getting cutting edge um, services you know at a like I say an affordable price point because we can use the technology to scale up the provision of the service and I think that's what's really appealing like we're, we're really helping people who need the most help.
0: That's, you know, obviously better for founders who are making do with online templates. In some ways, you're cheaper than the cost of damages of getting it wrong or an actual lawyer. In some ways, you're faster, right? Because you're using technology here. It's just that it feels like there's a lot of legal tech startups kind of like going after it, right? So there's like Carter going after some aspects of it. I think the U.S. is a whole bunch of firms. Obviously, we haven't seen that to the same extent in Asia, PAC, and Southeast Asia. What do you think about that? Is it because the market too fragmented, or is you know, this, you know the market is behind or in terms of adoption? How do you think about that?
1: I think we certainly differentiate ourselves from some of the other legal tech players in the market. For one thing, we are not a document template provider. We actually take a founder through the entire life cycle, say a, a fundraising from the moment you set up your cap table to creating your term sheet, your signing your subscription agreement and then doing all your filings afterwards. And along the way, we're providing services to help the founder through that negotiation, we're explaining to them what the terms mean. We're giving them data and benchmarking against the market to say, actually, the market standard for a this term is X days or X percent. And so I think that's where the differentiation comes in, where it's not just the, the, the document itself being provided. Why Asia? I think it's still up and coming. There are attempts to come into the market. You're right. There's a lot of fragmentation here. Each ASEAN country, each Southeast Asian country has their own laws, their own customs, market practices, language as well is is a challenge. These are challenges that we also face coming into this market, but I think we have to start somewhere. And when we were coming up with the business plan, it was a no-brainer. Start in Singapore because of a number of reasons. One, Singapore has the common law system, which is similar to the UK. It means that the transferability, the uh, interoperability of the, the platform is it's a lot easier to localize. Also, English language, similar reasons. Singapore is a hub for startups. It doesn't really matter whether the startup is in Indonesia, in Vietnam, in Cambodia. Somehow or other, if the startup's really going to scale, they're going to look towards Singapore, whether as a regional hub or whether as a place for investment, for fundraising. Um, we often see that startups in other parts of Southeast Asia will come to Singapore and incorporate their holding company, so that investment can be taken through that Singaporean holding company. And that's why as a strategy, we chose Singapore. We said that as long as we're here where the investors are, the startups will also come. And as long as we are Singapore law compliant, as in the services we provide is Singapore law compliant, that will appeal to the startups and the investors. So that's part of the business strategy for us. Longer term, yeah, expansion is, is definitely on the cards. We're looking at the neighboring countries where there are a lot of startups and seeing how we can continue to service them there as
0: well. And, you know, kind of coming to the last chapter here, could you share with us a time that you have been brave personally? The story that comes to mind to the forefront is
1: making this choice to jump from big law to startup. It was a two-year journey for me to explore leaving big law like I said, you know, there's a lot of creature comforts, a lot of certainty that you get by being in a big corporate and the path that, that is set out for you. Now, of course, it's challenging, it's competitive, and you still have to be good at what you do. But if you are and you're hardworking, you can get to the top of that ladder in, in, within a corporate. Without being sounding too arrogant, like I think that was available to me. I, if I continued to plow away, I think I could have made something of myself within that journey so to then uproot all of that and go into something as uh challenging as uncertain as going into a startup was a big decision for me and it took a while for me to figure out is this the right thing for me which is the right startup for me what do i actually want to achieve within the startup and what do i want to do beyond that that's where a lot of self-reflection a lot of deep discussions with family with friends with my mentors for anyone kind of going through something like this, I also highly recommend going and seeking a coach where you can uh, have someone who can challenge you and ask you the deep questions. What are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? What are the challenges that you foresee? It was terrifying to, to think, oh my gosh, I'm going to leave all of this behind. Also, I, I got a page, a really good paycheck every month and for I could expect that to keep in- increasing as well. So to give all of that up is, is scary. But for me, I think I've described some of the reasons that I, I left and, and went to find a different path. I'm just very curious. Like for me, I think the decision came down to if I don't give it a shot. And I fast forward 10, 20 years from now and I look back and I say, Siang, you had that opportunity you know, 20 years ago and you didn't take it. What would I say to myself? And I think there would be a pang of regret. And so when that realization came to me, I just thought, heck, I've got to do it now. You know, if I don't try, I will always regret it, even if I don't get to the outcome that I thought I would get to. So notice I didn't say fail because I don't think you can actually fail in this. If I don't get to that outcome that I thought I would get to, I will get to a different outcome. And it would still be a great outcome because I would have had all the experience that I had down this journey. I would learn new things, meet lots of new people, be exposed to new industries, be exposed to different ways of thinking, different cultures. And that can only set me up for more success in the future, right? So when I frame it that way, the decision became a lot less scary and it also, I think the fear of me regretting 20 years from now was actually what really drove me in the end and, and to make this so-called brave decision, because it would have been uh, much tougher to just stay and regret it later on. Another big part of it is is also just understanding the exposure and experience that you can get from this, right? Like now... I get to work with my team of people who are experts in marketing, in sales, in customer support, in tech, in product. And these are things that as a traditional lawyer, I, I just really wouldn't get exposed to. Within the first you know, six months of me joining C-Legals and working with my, my marketing team, I started to learn about SEO, PPC, all these acronyms that sort of jumped at you and I was like wow, this is another world of marketing of optimization that I never even thought I would come across as a lawyer. And it was exciting to learn new things. And then, you know, you're working in a tech company and you learn about tech sprints and how to do things in an agile manner, you learned how GitHub works and the what sits behind the front end of uh, a tech platform and how the back end and the front end is- can interoperate. You get to work with partners and you sort of talk about integrations, whether it's at a service level or at a a technology level with APIs. And again, these are very exciting things that you don't really get as a lawyer. So once, even six months into my job, I I knew that I made the right choice because I was learning so many new things. And, And so for me, it's like, be brave, ask yourself why it is you want to do what you want to do, and then take the leap because The experience you get taking that leap, you won't regret, right? You will just have so much more opportunity that will open up, many more doors that will
0: open up after that. What's interesting is that you shared about how asking yourself the questions that are hard to ask, right? And what would you say are the hard questions that people don't really ask themselves? You know, could you share flavor or examples of those questions so that people can reflect on them after this podcast?
1: Sure. Uh, I think given this is an Asian audience, I think the first big question is always about money. I'm not going to lie. As a lawyer, I made a good paycheck. And the first question that people ask me is, and I ask myself is, oh, can you afford to take a pay cut? Well, first of all, if you're earning a lot of money and you take a pay from a lot of money, you still earn a decent amount of money. So I think ask yourself, how much money do you really need? I was fortunate enough to have worked for a period of time now, so I have savings. And so you, you have to also be sensible, practical, map it out for yourself. Lawyers are not traditionally known to be good at finance or financial tools, using Excel and modeling all that out. If you are one of those, then I recommend that you find a friend to help you model it out and you will see that you don't actually need that much money to live, especially while you're you know, in the earlier decades of your life. And if you want to achieve the things that I said I wanted to achieve, then maybe see this as an investment. And for me, one of the other things that I was exploring in the in those two years of asking myself, do I want to make this kind of jump? I thought about doing an MBA two things about the mba and why i didn't do it was one it's very very expensive and i couldn't convince myself that i would benefit sufficiently by throwing all that money into grad school and two i guess it was during covid so the networking aspect of it would be lost because i wouldn't be able to do it in person instead i now found a job where actually i'm learning all the skills that i probably would have learned on the mba but now i'm getting paid to do it so in some ways i'm actually getting paid to study, to get experience, to get education. I would argue that I would come up better for it after this experience than maybe a graduate from a, uh, an MBA school. So I think it's about framing the, the mindset as well and the perspective. I think the other hard question to ask is also about the external appearance, the external validation. Again, from an Asian angle, right, being a lawyer, is prestigious it's people look up to you or you know people respect you for it you i carry pride when i say that i'm a lawyer you have to also ask yourself are you prepared to switch that are you prepared to reinvent yourself and relabel yourself because there will be aspects of society that you know will have a different perspective so those are hard questions you have to ask yourself and you have to be prepared for it for the change but for me, I, again, I look at the risk-reward, I look at the reward, and I think, actually, I'm, I'm going to be better for this. So I'm willing to take the, the sacrifice.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. i love to wrap this up by recapping, I think, the three big themes. The first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about your time growing up in Malaysia and your remembrances of your father's uh, own path and how... You actually uh, made your own set of decisions based on the realities, but also I think the pragmatism to become a lawyer eventually yourself and what you learned there. The second, of course, is thank you for sharing with us quickly about, I think, the legal profession and legal tech and startup law. And I think a lot of the various uh, dimensions that one should be thoughtful about in terms of uh, you know picking the right provider, but also being thoughtful about what are the more advanced tips about what to do if you're in the industry yourself. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing what I call deep career questions, at least some of the self-reflection around your, like you said, personal income from how much do you make to how much do I need to survive to what is it that I want to do with my life. Thank you so much for coming on the Brave show. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.